You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Dave Burke. Dave, thanks so much for taking some time to join me today. John, it's awesome to be here, man. Thank you. So, uh, you know, a, a month or two ago, uh, I started realizing that we were we were really heavy on the kind of um, on ground combat stories. And I wanted to try to see if we could feature some more things from other domains, specifically from aviators. So I put the word out, I think on Twitter, asking if anybody knew anybody with a good story, uh, any pilots. And August Cole, uh, a good friend of mine who, who I guess you know as well, said, hey, you should talk to this guy, Dave Burke. And he linked us up. Uh, and it turns out uh, after we talked, uh, we are going to feature a story that is you on the ground, but you are a pilot um, by, I guess, by training. Can you tell, uh, give listeners, I guess, a little bit of your military background? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, thanks to August for uh, making the connection. And I remember those conversations you and I had about what would be a good story. And it was kind of cool that we end up coalescing around the idea that a ground story from an aviator's perspective might be useful for your audience, which I certainly hope that it is. I spent 23 years in the Marine Corps, and almost all of that was as a pilot. You know, I joined, believe it or not, as a ground officer, but was lucky enough to get selected for aviation uh, right at the beginning there and went down the aviation track. And I had really one year during you know, the height of my career out of the cockpit from flying fighters uh, to go be a Ford Air Controller. And it just so happens that that year I was a Ford Air Controller, I was deployed with a unit called Anglico, which really is designed to connect uh, Marine Corps and Army units together using Marine Air and Army Ground Doctrine. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I was in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006 as a Ford Air Controller supporting the Army and a, a group of SEALs, a task unit from a SEAL Team 3 in the Battle of Ramadi. So pretty interesting time in my career and a big departure from what I was accustomed to flying airplanes. So as a pilot, what, uh, what aircraft did you fly? Well, I started off in the F-18. So I finished flight school. I was a Hornet pilot and flew off carriers. Uh, I got lucky enough to fly a second airplane called the F-16, which is predominantly an Air Force jet, but I flew it uh, really as part of the Navy. I was a Top Gun instructor as a Marine, and the Navy had purchased F-16s, so I was dual qualified in the F-16 and the F-18. I left that those platforms and eventually moved on to another Air Force platform as an exchange officer, flew the F-22 Raptor for almost four years. Uh, as a Marine on exchange with the Air Force. And then I concluded my career leaving the F-22 and started up the first F-35 squadron. And I was the first uh, operational F-35B pilot uh, and stood up the first Marine Corps F-35 squadron and finished my career in that platform. So I got lucky, man. I got to fly four different operational airplanes uh, from several different services, which was really cool. Did you have a favorite? You know, it's hard to answer that. You know, depends on, on what attribute you're looking for. Uh, it's really hard to replicate the the pure joy of flying an F-22, uh, but I'll tell you, all three uh, other airplanes, the Hornet, the Viper, and the F-35, all have things about them that I absolutely love. So uh, it kind of maybe depends on the day and the setting. Uh, all four of them were, were amazing. How would you, can you maybe give listeners uh, who, who aren't familiar, uh, as I'm not familiar with it, you know, we think of the Air Force as kind of the, the service that owns that particular domain. We know that yeah. there's naval aviation, that they fly for carriers a lot. What is the role of Marine Corps fixed wing aviation? Yeah, well, very specifically speaking, the role of Marine Corps fixed wing aviation is, is to support the MAGTAF. 
So the Marine Corps has this component that they call the MAGTAF, the Marine Air Ground Task Force, and it's scalable. Sometimes it's squadron size, sometimes it's group size, sometimes it's wing size, so it really varies in size. But the real fundamental warfighting principle of the Marine Corps is to bring all the ground combat, the air combat, and the logistics components together in this combined force known as the MAGTAF. And so the aviation community exists as the air arm of the Marine Corps' warfighting component, and we supply you know, aircraft, uh, different types, different uh, capabilities to support the overall scheme of maneuver. So we're going to talk about a story from, as you said, 2006, during the Battle of Ramadi, when you were uh, serving as a forward air controller. Is that a typical thing for pilots to go and do for a period of time? Yeah, it's not uncommon. Uh, I would guess maybe, you know, 30 or 40% of pilots in the Marine Corps end up becoming facts. I don't have a, you know, a stat to prove that, but, you know, just generically speaking, maybe a third or so do that. Uh, a third go do something else, and third maybe go to school. So it's not an uncommon thing, although it's certainly not you know the vast majority either. And was it something that you wanted to do? Yeah, it was. Actually, I was at Top Gun, and I was really contemplating retirement. Uh, but I looked back in my career at the time in 2005 and reflected that as a Marine, I spent you know two and a half years in naval aviation training, four years as a Marine flying off carriers, and three years up at Top Gun, I really wanted to leave the military, leave the Marine Corps with what was, I thought would be kind of a very purely uniquely Marine Corps experience. So I pushed really hard and, and sort of begged our monitor, which gives us our assignments, to give me a billet as a Ford Air Controller, which I got, but it didn't occur to me that I would end up supporting the Army and the Navy on the ground. So it was kind of an interesting turn of events, but it still very much was a very uh, unique Marine Corps experience that I wanted uh, is why I stayed in to go be a Ford Air Controller and volunteered for that job. Yeah, I was going to ask if the Marines just issued you your purple uniform or if you have to <laughs> get that one for yourself. Yeah, um, not right. Not, not quite. So in uh, so when when did you become a Ford Air Controller? I left Top Gun uh, late 2005, and I think I was a fully qualified Ford Air Controller sometime toward the end, maybe November, December of 2005, and got prepared to go on a deployment which took place in early 2006. Okay. And so what is that deployment? Since you were going to work with an army unit, are you, you know, do you go through sort of pre-deployment stuff with that unit? Do you meet them in country? What does that look like? Yeah. So I met both the units that I worked with in country. Now I knew when I joined this unit called Anglico, this liaison company that what their doctrine was. And I understood that it was very likely I'd be working with an army unit or some other unit that wasn't in the Marine Corps that didn't understand the use of Marine Corps doctrinal aviation. So I had a good sense that I was going to be there to co help coordinate between the ground component and the air component of two different services. I didn't know exactly where I was going to be until relatively late in the workup cycle. And when I got to Ramadi, I eventually uh, arrived there and supported a unit a National Guard unit called the 228 BCT that had been in country for almost a year or maybe around a year. So I, I fell into them and supported them for one to two months and they left and were eventually replaced by another unit, the 11AD, an armored unit out of, at the time, Baumholder, Germany, and started working with them. So I had two different units and neither of which did I have any preparation ahead of time. I just fell in on them and then they ripped out and a new unit came in. So a very interesting time to do uh, relief in place and sort of real-time relationship building with no previous training or preparation. So we're going to tell, you know, you're going to tell, I guess, a story from, from the battle of Ramadi, which was, which was really, you know, I, I think if you probably Google it, if you read historical documents, they talk about it being an eight month long battle. Um, but it, it clearly ebbed and flowed at various yeah. points in time. Um, how quickly after you got in country, did you sort of realize, Hey, things are really kicking off in this city here? Yeah, I kind of hit the ground running. Now, I got there in February of 2006, and it really started to ramp up pretty quickly after that. By the summer of 2006, we were in a full-blown counterinsurgency war, and it was a uh, you know kind of the height pitch battle. You know, I think the the number of casualties and the the number of uh, engagements was probably at its peak over the summer. I had ended up leaving right at the end of September. So I was there during a pretty busy time, but realized too, just like you alluded to, you know, the units that I had come in and replaced, you know, things were, were, were growing and things were getting hotter and, and things were getting worse. Uh, and the units prior to me were certainly very busy as well. But I think historically speaking, sort of the, the peak of the apex of the battle of Ramadi was that summer uh, kind of lasting till the early part of 2007 when things started to really wane. So I was there for a good portion of it, obviously not all of it and a, 
bunch of other units had some incredible engagements as well. But I was definitely there during one of the, the busiest peak times and, and the urban counterinsurgency I was a part of in the middle of that summer was, was pretty aggressive. Uh, certainly a unique experience for me as a pilot. And is there a particular day or particular mission that, that yeah. we're going to talk about that, that, that kind of maybe exemplifies that? Yeah, there is. And look, you, you know, I talked a little bit offline, I, a million stories racked my brain. And, you know, it's interesting because there's so many incredible stories out there and I, I didn't know which one to pull from. The one that really stuck in my mind that I thought might be helpful and, and somewhat relevant for our conversation is um, me supporting an army squad on a patrol where we ended up getting ambushed and I got to use aircraft. Uh, you know, I did it several times, but the unique part about this, this uh, aircraft use of aircraft was we ended up doing type one close air support type one cast so it's a really close situation and we did multiple type one gun runs off f-18s and part of the reason why the story i thought might be interesting is that i was controlling aircraft from my former squadron mates so guys that i was really good friends with flying the airplane that i'd flown in combat before but it was also something that when i left uh and it was getting ready to deploy and starting to learn how to be a forward air controller one of the pre predominant ideas was that type one cast was dead and that I would never do type one gun runs. And the era of that had come and gone. We did have some experience in Afghanistan that came and went, uh, but there was this belief that we would never be so close to be doing type one gun runs. And then there I was in the middle of this counterinsurgency fight uh, doing type one casts, kind of chuckling to myself in real time that we would be told it would never happen. So, you know, there's nothing, um, you know, there's probably a lot of guys out there that long since then have done a lot of type one casts, but at the time it was something that we considered was, was just not something we would be doing. And about what time during the summer, uh, was this? This was probably June. Uh, I'm getting, you know, I'd have to go back and look. Uh, I don't know if I could find the exact date, but it, it wouldn't surprise me, man, if it was like literally right now, uh, 14 years ago, 2006. And what was the what was the city like around that time? You know, there was some effort to get civilians to leave the city. Yeah, um, in kind of in advance of the fighting, were had that been effective, uh, or were there still civilians uh, yeah. populating the city like you would expect? The city was was full of civilians. There was probably at this time again, the, you know, we're right in the middle of it. So summer uh, June of two thousand six, so fourteen years ago now as the insurgency really started to grow and the summer months kind of set upon us, there was about 400,000 civilians operating, or I'm sorry, living inside the city. And there were probably somewhere between, and there's some smarter history folks out there that could double check this, but somewhere between three and 5,000 insurgents operating inside the city, you know, where those civilians were. Now, the interesting thing about Ramadi was there was this really incredibly dense urban population inside the city that really wasn't more than, you know, three to four to five miles wide, three to more five miles north and south. You know, it's a pretty dense population, but there was it was bordered by a river on the other side of the river, like really a stone's throw away. It went from densely urban to like highly, highly rural. Uh, it really a very uh, short distance. And anybody that's ever fought in Ramadi will probably chuckle hearing this and knowing how quick the disparity and the contrast is just in going to the other side of the river there. So you would have this deep urban fight and then very quickly on maybe on the same day in the afternoon, you'd find yourself in this really strangely, oddly rural fight as well. So it's a pretty interesting contrast uh, in what we're dealing with. So this day when, when you go out uh, accompanying the squad, yeah. Uh, what what's what was the terrain like in the in the particular area where you guys were going to be patrolling? Yeah, so we departed the 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 northwest corner of the city in a pretty urban area, uh, and took a road, uh, a main uh, a main supply route, and uh, took this road across the river, across the bridge, and very quickly found ourselves in a very rural uh, uh, trees and and brush and and long dirt roads. And the mission that we were given uh, was to move down a road towards a hospital. And the mission was simply just a movement to contact, which was a pretty, by that time, by the summer, you know, June, July, August, we were doing a lot of movement to contact missions, which sure. essentially just get out with a squad uh, of soldiers and go on a patrol and uh, just start to um, move until we found, you know, enemy contact kind of moving north along, along this road uh, with, that, with this army unit. And about how long uh, was this expected to take? 
Yeah, it, we always kind of went in with with a bit of an unknown. It was probably something that had we had no contact. It would probably be an hour patrol in and an hour patrol out. Assuming you're just kind of doing a normal foot patrol with no contact, it would probably that's how much distance we were covering. You know, obviously this one took a, a while longer just because of what had happened, but it wasn't you know this incredibly long distance. But it was certainly enough that you know, like I said, by May, June, by that time frame, by spring, summer, things were getting pretty hot. So the distances weren't too crazy. And you guys, so you guys were on foot? Yeah, it was a foot patrol. So we, you Humvee in uh, with, with a group of folks, uh, and then you stage the Humvees on this route. I believe the route was called Route Duster. There's some, again, probably some Ramadi veterans out there that will chuckle at this, remembering some of these roads. Route Duster. And then we would dismount. And so with my vehicle, I would leave back my turret gunner and the driver. And I would take with me my corpsman, you know, my medic. And I would take my radio operator. So of the five-man team that I would bring in on the Humvees, we would stage with the rest of the soldiers that were there. And then we'd go on. And I think at the time it was two parallel squads. I was supporting one squad. So we probably had 15 guys, uh, maybe 20 guys on this patrol plus, plus us. So not the world's biggest patrol, but enough that you know we had a, a wide enough formation that my three Marines were inside this Army squad doing this patrol. And again, just movement to contact towards kind of a, a main position at the very end of this road uh, down towards the river uh, to kind of engage any potential hostiles in the area. So with the movement to contact, uh, I think a lot of listeners who have, have some experience with this will know that, you know, there are some days when you go out and it's just quiet and it feels quiet and you have this sense that there's nothing really going on. There are other days when yeah. the sort of sixth sense, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you, and you, you just sort of feel something is coming. Uh, what did it feel like that day? Yeah, I would say that it was more towards the second. Now, I obviously didn't expect it to be – you never know exactly how it's going to play out. But I had done a fair amount of patrols early on, February, March – time frame when I had been there, you know, late winter, early spring, that were how you described in the beginning. It's sort of boring. There's just not a lot going on. People aren't out and there wasn't a ton of activity. So I'd been on, on a, my fair share of, of, you know, quote, boring patrols that anybody's ever been on. You go do this and you build it up, you prep for it, you, you stay on point, but nothing ever happens. But it had gotten busy enough uh, towards this time as the spring kind of set it, settled in and people were getting out more we were getting busier. And so contact on a patrol was becoming more common. And so I kind of had this sense that the likelihood that we would have contact was high enough uh, that I was certainly, you know, not that you ever want to get complacent, but I certainly, certainly had the thought in the back of my mind that this was one of those days that there was a potential there. So you got kind of that gut feeling you talked about. And how far into the patrol uh, was it before that, that yeah. fruition? You know, it, we kind of got about three quarters of the way through of where we were going, sort of where we expected to go. And I remember on this patrol, as we got closer towards our objective or toward, you know, towards the turnaround point, I guess would be is there was a few, there was more and more houses uh, and, and places uh, to operate from the farther on we get. And so we started this little leapfrog movement that we would kind of broke up the squad into different teams. And, you know, we take about half, half the folks, maybe, you know, eight, nine or 10 folks would kind of move ahead, you know, a couple hundred yards into a house, provide some cover. And then w the other group would stay in a particular house to get some cover and support them. And we were just kind of moving back and forth. And we were probably close to our, our turnaround point when the teams had been split up and one unit had gotten up towards one of the houses when the ambush kicked off. And how far from this, I guess, from the uh, the firing points, the enemy firing points were you? Yeah, well, for me, for me personally, uh, the first awareness that I had um, that this was happening was a volley of fire that went above me and a couple guys' heads that probably hit the wall above us, probably three or four feet above us. Uh, fortunately, we're right by a door, um, which was a really good thing as we, we kind of managed our, our, to get inside the building, you know, very quickly. And uh, shortly after that, you know, the, most of the buildings out there were, were multi-level and it's really common that the roofs are very flat and have a little parapet, little rock wall up there. So once we got inside, you know, we moved up to the roof, uh, my Anglico team, you know, and, and with the squad leader got up to the roof to try to get a better sense of, of where things were. And as he was doing that, uh, the other element of his squad was moving away from that building uh, towards the east, kind of moving uh, in an easterly direction towards another building that was probably uh, maybe 50, 40 yards away, very close. And we kind of assessed that the fire was coming from somewhere in that area. So 
maybe 200 yards away. And, and this is a guess. I, you know, I couldn't tell you exactly how far it was, uh, but it ended up being a vehicle that was kind of in between two houses on a dirt road was one of the center points of where the firing was come from. They were, they were using that for cover and it was hidden in between two, two buildings. It was really hard to see. And there's plenty of trees and stuff in the way. Um, and then the attack kind of get a little more aggressive as RPG fire started to come in as well, which certainly made for a pretty interesting, uh, um, uh, situation. So you, you know, like, like other people, I guess on this patrol, you know, there are some people who have one job. Um, there are other people who have multiple jobs, yeah. you know, whoever, whoever's leading the patrol is, you know, in this case has to fight and also has to maneuver the, the sort of sub elements around, uh, you know, a medic has to fight, but then also has to be prepared to yeah. provide aid in the case for you specifically, you know, you've got kind of two impulses, I imagine. Okay. Be part of this, you know, sort of hasty defense that you're establishing. Um, but also start thinking through, okay, am I going to be called on, you know, should I be thinking about calling in air support? Right. At what point do you kind of transition from one role to another? You know, for me, that was pretty immediate. Uh, the unit that I was working with is really experienced guys. Um, the, the, the soldiers that I was working with were really competent, really good. And, you know, without me even having much awareness to it, they're maneuvering, uh, the, the, the army, team that I was with, their maneuvering was really effective. They split between two buildings. They were communicating really well. And I kind of remember the sense of, I had a very strong belief that while I was there, my role was really just to provide them support. I never really had a sense of having to do much other than make sure my guys were, were where they needed to be, myself included, to support the soldiers I was supporting. And I was a major at the time, but happened to be the lead on this patrol was a first lieutenant and I I was working for him. And my job was, was to support him and give him what he needed. And so I didn't really have a ton of thought in my head uh, as to what, you know, what anybody else should be doing other than I need to get to the roof with him, which is where he was, uh, where he was going to provide some support. And so I almost immediately started coordinating the aircraft that we had had communicated with, but they weren't uh, assets directly allocated to us. So it wasn't pure uh, constant communication. I checked in once before, let them know where we were, gave them some SA, but hadn't been in direct comms with them. Up until the point that we had this, and I declared the tick, uh, which is uh, you know for those listening, the troops in contact. So we're hey, we're in a firefight that gave us uh, instant priority over the aircraft, and those aircraft, wherever they might have been, immediately vectored towards our location. That they had a sense of where that was already, uh, just having communicated with them. But it kind of made them move, move aircraft move much more quickly. So I, I was almost immediately in the support with the aircraft, get the aircraft overhead mode, and those Hornets arrived overhead pretty quickly. They're Marine Corps aircraft? Yeah, two Marine Corps F-18Ds out of Al-Assad, uh, which was the airfield out to the west from where we were that supported with all the fixed-wing assets for all the um, the ground elements. And they are, at this time, just sort of up in the air, flying a pattern, waiting to see who needs help? Well, at this time, they're somewhere else. They're probably you know 20 or so miles away. I think they were working with another ground unit that didn't have anything going on. And so they're kind of on a direct vector pointed directly at us. You know, it's a two-ship formation, two F-18s, probably, you know, a couple miles apart, running in our direction. And as they're checking in, uh, you know, as they're approaching overhead, they're switching over to our frequency, my tactical frequency on my radio, uh, checking in with us as they're, as they're showing up, which they got there, you know, very quickly. They, they were probably just a few minutes away based on, on time. Yeah, I imagine they cover 20 miles pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They weren't, you know, it's a big area out there. You know, uh, Al Ambar can be big. We were lucky that in this case, I don't know where exactly they were, but it wasn't so far that it took too long. You know, they showed up within a matter of minutes. And is there sort of a, a hierarchy if, for instance, if 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 the unit, the ground unit that they were supporting had also been involved in a tick at the time and they could not support, is there sort of a fallback option? Yeah, in that time, we, we didn't have a ton of aircraft that were directly overhead all the time. Uh, my recollection is something to the effect of, you know, two or four Hornets and two or four Harriers. Probably, that's probably a little aggressive. It's probably four total aircraft in Al Ambar on a 24-hour cycle, you know, all, always available. But they also had aircraft on strip alert. So it was one of those things that if those four aircraft that were already overhead, even if they were dedicated to some other ground unit, couldn't support what was going on, they would launch helicopters out of Altacatum or other fixed wing assets. Or we could even do some coordination with the folks out to the east, you know, on the on the Baghdad side, the Army and the Air Force coordinating out there. We had times that I was a fact that they would send over aircraft, Strike Eagles, uh, F-16s, and, and even Navy aircraft in the Gulf over our way. 
So they were available, but if you if you needed them, if they weren't overhead, it was going to be a wait because the hierarchy was such that uh, it was going to take a while to get to you. So this is the day we're lucky to have them, even though they weren't dedicated just to us, but they were available and overhead, uh, just working a normal uh, mission. And our troops in contact scenario gave us priority. So I think most listeners will sort of understand conceptually what close air support means and what it looks like. Uh, some of our listeners will have experienced it, been on been on the ground when you when you call for it, and you know been very relieved when they yeah. uh, when they when they show up. But the actual sort of um, practical side of what calling that in looks like, feels like, sounds like is probably pretty opaque to them. So can you kind of walk through, you know, what's your initial transmission to, to the aircraft and, and how does that communication, uh, transpire? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, 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 I'll have to, you know, make it clear, obviously this, this story is going to pale in comparison, uh, you know, com- to what a lot of your listeners have probably already seen and experienced, you know, but at the time for me, it was, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, that initial call, you know, the, 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 the simplest definition of close air support is that we utilize assets, air, air assets, but the big point about close air support is it has to be close coordination with the troops on the ground. You know, a lot of times air assets go beyond a particular line, uh, a coordination line by which they don't really need to do much work with the guys on the ground because they're so far away. They can kind of just get targets that are available to them uh, or kind of go out for a hunt on their own. But when you do close air support, the most critical aspect of that is the aircraft overhead have to have a really good sense of where the friendly and the enemy are. And so that detailed coordination from the FAC is required, especially in type one. So the first calls that you're talking to when you get the aircraft overhead normally fall like a very specific doctrine of, of a check-in brief. They tell you who they are, where they are, what their altitude is, how much gas they've got, what weapons they've got, how long can they be there. And they immediately show up and tell you, hey, this is what we are. This is what we're bringing to the fight. And you kind of reply back with, okay, thank you. Let me tell you what the situation is here. And then that initial coordination is just getting the two, the aircraft and the folks on the ground, those two components aligned. And you know we could do that pretty quickly because we follow doctrine. What was cool about this particular case is part of what makes the story so memorable is that, you know, I'm on the rooftop, uh, we've got separated units, it's a pretty, it's pretty hectic at the time, there's a lot of, you know, volume of fire is fairly decent. And when the aircraft showed up overhead, rather than having to go through this very specific doctrinal check in of this is my aircraft type, this is my location, the person on the radio literally keyed the mic and said, Chip, this is boo, what do you need? And it turned out that the guy who was flying in that lead F-18 was my old operations officer, a former squadron mate of mine that I had deployed with that knew me and I knew him so extremely well that I didn't need to know the aircraft type. I didn't need to know the order. I knew these guys and I knew what they were bringing. And when he just gave me his personal call sign, it gave this huge sense of relief to me of, hey, all this doctrinal coordination that's typically required for close coordination casts, we've got a lot of that covered. Uh, and I remember looking over the, the squad leader and saying, hey, man, we're going to be okay with a smile on my face and, and the tremendous amount of relief that these aircraft are going to show up and very quickly get the situation where they needed to be able to drop ordnance or do whatever they needed to do uh, to help us out without you know a typical long check-in process. So that was a huge relief. And one of the most memorable things of that engagement was just his calling me overhead, checking in, uh, which to this day, you know, I, I remember like it was just happened. Wow. So... When, then when you are sort of kind of identifying the, uh, you know, the enemy firing points, the place where you want this ordinance dropped, are you, you know, figuring out grid coordinates and passing that along? Or are they flying low enough that you're sort of describing the landscape yeah. and saying, hey, it's there's a truck between these two buildings, yeah. you know, that's where you got to hit. That's exactly right. And so that's kind of the beauty of type one is they probably checked in. I bet you the initial check and they were probably, you know, about 10,000 feet, which is sort of a middle to lowish altitude for an F-18. It's pretty low enough for their sensors and their systems to work. And you got a pretty good view of the of the ground from the cockpit. Uh, but you're high enough to avoid any small arms fire. And you're also saving some gas. So uh, they probably checked into that sort of middle altitude there. And we had a, a floor that you couldn't go below just to make sure the aircraft weren't at any unnecessary risk. But it's also low enough for them to, to get that visual perspective. And my talk on in this particular case, what I was getting them to see was a pure visual talk on. So other types of casts, you know, type two casts, sometimes type three casts, there's different methods to doing it. You could use a laser pointer, you could pass a grid. There's a lot of different things you can do inside the nine line. But in this particular case, we just did a visual talk on. And, and one of the best things that happened is very quickly, 
uh, Boo and, and the element of F-18s were able to see where we were. And so they knew what location we were in. So I was able to talk them on from my position. So it was something very similar to the idea of, hey, from my position, you know, west, you know, 100 meters, you'll see two small buildings. One has a flat black roof uh, and one has a, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an open courtyard in the west. And he'd say, hey, contact, I see that. Or it's you know it's it's a visual I see that and then I can say hey what do you see between those two those two buildings and he say I see a north south dirt road and I'm like hey okay we've got it because he just I described the buildings he saw that and then he validated my description by telling me he saw a north south dirt road in between those two buildings which is exactly what I wanted him to see and I said hey at the intersection of that road in between those two houses there's a vehicle call contact he's like hey contact. Uh, what appears to be a white vehicle or maybe blue, I don't remember the color, but he tell, described it to me and I'm like, hey man, that's it. And so it was almost that simple, almost that quick and almost that much plain English talking him on purely visually, him looking outside the cockpit and while his backseater was kind of running the sensors at the same time, but getting that visual talk on was quick and really, really helpful for me to verify that he knew what we were doing. So that verification or validation that you described, where you describe kind of part of the landscape and then they, they fill in the, the missing piece of the puzzle. So you both have that confidence. Um, is that something you're taught to do either by yeah. that means or some other, or is that something yeah. that just gave you that extra confidence? No, that's a technique. And so, uh, you know, I could talk to you and John and I could, I could try to explain to you what I'm seeing. If you were looking at something from a different vantage point, I could kind of talk you through it and I could tell you all the things that I'm seeing. And over time I might create some confidence that you and I are both looking at the same thing, but the train out there, certainly that are, there's certainly an urban combat. There's enough similarities that, you know, finding the two-story building with the flat roof just isn't enough. And even the two buildings close together. So my explanation and the technique that we're taught is to create an explanation that really funnels his point of view down. But a great way to validate isn't to say, I see a vehicle between the two roads, because there is some potential, I'm sorry, between the two buildings, because there is some potential, there could be the exact same scene, you know, three miles to the east that I don't even know, two buildings with the, with the road between it and a vehicle, that's not that uncommon. And so it's, sure. there's a potential there to have that scenario be played out. And so a better way to do it is, hey, I see these two things. He says, I see the same thing. And okay, well, tell me what you see to the north. Hey, I see a hedgerow. Uh, I see a football field or I see a vehicle. And if he sees that, that just gives me an additional amount of confidence uh, that he and I are looking at the same thing. So it's very much technique. And look, at the same time, I'm also looking up. I'm seeing his aircraft arc through the sky. So I have a really good sense because I flew the airplane, I kind of know where I would put my jet to see what I'm seeing, that the position of his aircraft, the angle of bank, the location, all kind of paint this picture in my mind that what he's seeing through the cockpit is also what I'm seeing on the ground. Those two different vantage points are aligned, and it gives me a ton of confidence. Now, I don't just cut them loose from there. There's there's more steps in this Type 1 process, so I have some checkpoints along the way. But at this point, I'm feeling really good that he and I are looking at the same vehicle. So at what point then do you start thinking about which weapon system is appropriate for this particular target? Yeah. And, and then also, is it, you know, whose call is that? And is, if it's the pilot's call, are you advising on that or vice versa? It's a collaboration. So in this case, it was kind of one of those scenarios that really wasn't that hard to figure out. Uh, the, the location of the friendly troops, the, the proximity of the buildings and the, the position of the threat, that it was it was very clear that the gun was the best weapon, has very minimal collateral damage. You could get it at very low altitudes and do a lot of risk mitigation. Uh, you know, uh, we carried, the Zero-18s carried bombs, they carried uh, rockets, they carried some other weapons, but the gun just based on the scenario was pretty straightforward. Now, those decisions, look, the fact in support of the ground troops is, is typically the one that makes the request, but for any good fact and any good JTEC, it's really a collaboration as, hey, this is what we want to accomplish here. This is the situation that we're in. Hey, I think maybe the gun is right. Any thoughts? And they'd come back and say, yeah, we agree. Or, hey, I've got forward firing rockets or I've got laser. Uh, you know, They can collaborate back and forth. And if the pilot understands what you want to accomplish, they can be really helpful in it. But ultimately, you know, the fact has to make that smart decision. The pilot has to support it. And in this case, it really wasn't, there wasn't a ton of options at the table. The gun was the most obvious one. Meanwhile, you you had you know back when you first started describing how this contact uh, started to to take shape, you said that there was a second element on the ground that was essentially assaulting toward uh, toward the point of fire. Yeah, so they were initially getting cover. They were in between this little leapfrog evolution. We were just getting into one building, and they were just moving to another. So kind of a half our half our element was getting up to provide cover. 
uh, and, and the other half of the element was getting ready to move. And I happen to be maybe two thirds of the way through that train, uh, which as I was entering the building, I was there, you know, with my corpsman and, and my, my radar operator, when the initial volley of fire rang out and, and hit above us, uh, I could tell the direction it was coming from just based on the, on the, you know, we're on the, on the east side of the building. Uh, so on the square building, and that was the same direction that our guys were moving into. So very quickly, we were able to isolate the two buildings that we were in, were the two buildings just to the just to the west of this road, knowing that the enemy was just on the other side of that. So it did make the the problem a little more simple because everything was isolated to one side of the fight, which was very convenient for us. So you didn't have to worry about maneuver, you know, essentially advising. Uh, the unit that you're on the ground with to 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 move away from from the yeah. target. I was able to explain, and we knew where we were, and I was able to explain to the aircraft these are the these are the locations of the friendly positions, and there were two of them, two buildings that were very close together, and both on the same side of the threat, which simplified that. Those can obviously be very complex situations sometimes, and can be very difficult. So we we were fortunate in this case that the location of the friendlies and the proximity to the threat was pretty pretty well understood through a quick talk onto the hornets overhead. So then you have been communicating with the uh, with the pilots. They have identified the the, the target. Um, they've decided, hey, we're going to go in with guns. Uh, what happens next? You know, the next call is, again was a very plain English call, not pure doctrine. And there's some folks that will. Uh, Certainly want to berate me for it, but it, it was effective at the time. It was something as simple as, um, hey, boo, looking for type one gun runs north to south, call wings level, which was really my way of saying, hey, we're going to do a, you know, kind of a racetrack pattern. I need you to coming in from north to south so they could have a, you know, a, a better vantage point of the road uh, and I could get a better vantage point of them, uh, you know. This isn't just pure direction, me telling him what to do. He validates that zone. Hey, we can make that happen. So there is some communication back and forth. But you, typically, it's not uncommon to have to do a very doctrinal line line of, hey, line four is this, line six is this, I need a read back. Because I was visual of him, he was visual of me, we were able to do a little uh, more deliberate discussion and have it happen more quickly, which was north to south, um, uh, gun runs, call wings level, which is me telling him, Hey, I need you to get in here now. I need you to get, you know, the, the, I need you to get on the enemy quickly, but I need you to, you know, there's some parameters I need, uh, to parallel the road, which is South to North or, or North to South. And we had to clear that up and got through that very quickly. He acknowledged that. And I could see him in his aircraft that he was flying with set up a formation, which is starting, which at the time just happened to be a left hand racetrack pattern. We call it just a left circular pattern in the sky that he would roll in kind of pointed sort of sweeping past us towards the target and I'd be able to watch him the entire time and be able to validate that his nose was indeed pointed at the target. And I gave, had a really cool vantage point of watching him do it, which allowed me to be really sure that what he was shooting at was indeed the enemy. So do both aircraft engage then? They did. And so we ended up doing four runs. So two each, so in and out times two, and they're kind of working what we call across the circle. So if you picture a circle or an oval, in this case, being a 360, they're 180 degrees out from each other. One's in, one's out. They're supporting each other and they're just working what we would call a racetrack pattern, kind of like a NASCAR, you know, racetrack pattern. there, uh, doing multiple runs. Part of the story too, which is really cool. And you know, this guy, Boo, if he ever hears this, will again, we'll chuckle at this. They were really low on gas. They had very minimal amount of fuel. Plus they're going to be now operating low, fast, which is a very high gas consumption environment. And we knew we didn't have a lot of opportunities with them and they were going to give me what, and he basically told me, Hey, we've got X number of minutes, you know, seven minutes and we've got a bingo, which meant they had to leave for fuel. And I knew that he wasn't giving himself any buffer. He was going to land with really minimum fuel back at Al-Assad. So we had a time limited crunch there that we needed to make happen. And once they've made the, I guess you said it was four gun runs. Um, it was, it was the, was the fire, was the, was the fire eliminated? Was the target neutralized? Yeah. So that first run, you know, we, we said, Hey, you know, call wings level. He kind of comes around this left race track pattern. I see his nose sweep directly and I can see him pointing right at the target. He calls wings level. I say, Hey, you're cleared hot. And he gets on the, the gun. I see the gun and the nose of the Hornet lights up as smoke comes out and some flame kind of comes out. Then there's this cool effect that the sound is delayed. So you see the smoke, but the sound of the gun spinning up and whirring is, you know, three to four seconds behind just because of the distance, which is kind of cool. And then you see the impact of the ground and that, and I'm able to use his first impacts 
to say, hey, you were long, short, left or right. They had some infrared sensors as well. But we use that first run to kind of narrow the, the scope of it. And by the second, and I think very much the third and fourth runs, the, the gun was impacting on the vehicle, like straight up hitting that vehicle. Uh, uh, so we knew that we had, we had good effects and they were just able to kind of loop that around four times total uh, to get good effects on that, on the target. So since you are a pilot uh, and have been on in, in that seat, um, so to speak, I, I can ask you, you know, we, we had a, uh, a guest on who was uh, uh, a helicopter pilot, an army helicopter pilot, and, and was describing engaging a, a target on the ground one time and I asked, you know, what's the aiming system and um, the particular aircraft he came in or that he was flying, he said, you know, it's, it's, it's not very sophisticated. We put in, we got a grease pencil and <laughs> put kind of a mark on the, on the, uh, on the windshield. And that's what we use as our sort of uh, basis. How sophisticated, you know, when you're calling in, Hey, long, short, right or left, um, what is the aiming mechanism or are they doing it by eye? It's a little bit of blend of both. You know, there's kind of a, an old saying, I'm, I'm sure it's across all of aviation. You put the thing on the thing and hit the thing. You know, you put the, the reticle on the button and hit the button. Um, the Hornet has a pretty nice system. And one of the advantages the Hornet had in this particular case, a two-seat Hornet, was they were able to see the target uh, as they're approaching. So their their weapon system and, and all the INS information, GPS information in the aircraft had already been slewed and designated onto this target. So as they roll in, they've, they've got probably like a 90% solution as it is. And as you roll in looking through the HUD, which is just the glass display in front of your face that you look through, and there's there's information superimposed on the HUD, like a green, basically just a reticle, a little bullseye, and it has both range, uh, dis, you know, so give you some range information how far away you are, and you know, right next to that is your altitude and your speed, and there's a little dot in the middle, literally just a, a, a green little dot, and you put the dot right on the middle of the target, it gets good ranging information, so you got a pretty good sense, and so you know when they're off. They're also aware of it, and it might just be just a little bit of adjustment they need to make. So I'm not having to give them huge corrections on, on where they are because they see it because that system is sophisticated enough and gives the pilot enough information. And the pilots are trained well enough to be able to get that. And because they came in with a lot of known information there, it was probably, if they were to tell you, probably pretty easy for them to make corrections and, and get uh, get the gun on the target. Okay. So after they've made that fourth gun run and they've, they've flown back to, I guess, fuel up, yep. um, things quiet down on the ground. Yeah. They could, you know, they kind of quieted down right in the middle of those runs. You know, the, the initial vol- volume of fire was pretty high. Uh, as we got up there, you know, there was an engagement back and forth, the aircraft coming overhead, you know, that, that gun does not just attacks that particular vehicle, but it also suppresses the enemy. They don't like aircraft overhead. Um, you know, we had a, a good vantage point up to the target, but, but it was very difficult due to some trees and stuff behind it to see what was going on past them. My assessment was that some of them probably just ran away and literally just started moving away from, from where we were. Uh, we couldn't see them, but the beauty of it was that, um, you know, the, 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 the fire stopped altogether. Nobody was shooting us anymore. And by the fourth run that the car, you know, all the tires had been blown up and, and, uh, I think a small fire had started and in that time, you know, from, from then, you know, probably five minutes after that, an M113, which had been way up to the north, you know, came down uh, and we had some, you know, support to go kind of check it out. It turns out by the time we checked it out, there was nothing there uh, or, or not, nothing there to, to worry about. Um, but uh, the aircraft did a good job and suppressed that and, and, and really just destroyed the vehicle, which is kind of cool to see. Um you know, in your story, it was clear that your experience as a pilot, in addition to the personal relationship that you had with, um, with this particular pilot that was flying, uh, your experience as a pilot was, was, it seems, you know, very important. Are all, um, are all forward air controllers, former pilots? Yeah. So the term FAC forward air controller, as the Marine Corps uses it, that means you are a pilot. Now you don't have to be a Hornet pilot. You could fly fixed wing, you could fly rotary wing, uh, you know, helicopters and, and C-130s, anything. But a pilot that gets designated as a uh, as a joint terminal air controller is a FAC. A non-pilot would be a JTAC. Now, the qualification and the training are very similar. We go through the same schools. And, you know, there's some incredibly capable JTACs out there, both officer and enlisted. The advantage of being a FAC is strictly just the perspective that you typically bring, which is you have been there on the other side. And so a Hornet fact, like I was controlling Hornets, I have the advantage of just the perspective of it, but you know, there are 
JTAX and, and, and non-Hornet facts out there that are really good. It just allows, the experience just allows you, and same thing would be a helicopter pilot that come in, you know, controlling Cobras and Hueys would, would have an advantage just based on that perspective. So it gives you a little vantage point, some viewpoint. It by no means implies that you're automatically better than anybody else. But in this particular case, it helped me a ton because I could get in my mind's eye in that cockpit and, and talking to someone that I'd flown with in combat before uh, was super, super helpful. You know, one of the things that um, comes up in, in a lot of the stories that we've featured um, on on the spear is that, you know, you have this mission, you have this particular event or experience, and then you come back and you do an after action review and you kind of talk through what you did right, what you did wrong. Um, you're kind of a, a you know, a, a lone wolf, so to speak, out there uh, in your role. And, and I suspect that you know, for you, the after action review is, you know, there's some value to talking through with the ground element that you're supporting, you know, how did this work? What could we do better? Um, but also it seems that there might be some value in talking to the pilots that you, that you worked with. Is there any mechanism by yeah. which to do that? There is. And, and John, I think that point is a really critical point. It's one of the things that I really think the Marine Corps does well. And part of the reason why the Marine Corps still believes that a pilot uh, is a really prime candidate to be a controller on the ground, even though you've made a ton of investment in his time to fly airplanes. It's because uh, that thing you just talked about, the communication with the pilots, whether it's in combat or in briefs or in, or in training or in missions or in debriefs, it's about relationship building. It's about creating trust and confidence and learning from each other. And there, there was most certainly a mechanism there by which we could communicate ahead of time. Uh, you know, we had things like Merc chat and even texting that, that type of stuff. We could do calls, we could send emails back and forth. So there's a lot of things you could do, but they don't, that doesn't always replace what you would have, you know, face-to-face communication. And so we didn't always have that face-to-face communication ahead of time. I was fortunate enough to know these people and take advantage of that. But one of the things that I try to train with the facts, the JTACs that work for me as an Anglico lead, as a team lead, and and a lot of the folks that I was working with that I was responsible for was finding a way to forge and build relationships pre and post mission, even when you can't see them, talk to them face to face, even through Merck, email or anything, just so they know who you are and what you're like and build those habits, get those good lessons learned. And so we, we debriefed with the pilots in this case. I was really fortunate that this particular pilot, this guy, Boo, he ended up coming out to Camp Ramadi where I was and we ended up hanging out for a night. He came out for uh, some other thing and we managed to talk and debrief that mission, which was a highlight of both of our careers. Got some cool pictures of the two of us, but we absolutely debrief and it's a critical thing that we do uh, to help not just get better at the tactics, but also to build those relationships and build that trust, which is really, really important. Part of the reason why I overemphasize the idea that that check-in today was, hey, Chip, it's boo, what do you need? That's just overflowing trust right there that I know this guy gets it and we're going to be okay, as opposed to a complete stranger in a platform I'm not familiar with that I got to start from the beginning and go, hey, I got to introduce myself. There's not a lot of time for that in combat sometimes, and that can be difficult. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to wrap up with, I guess, one kind of final question. Um, you know, the the your experience is emblematic of something in the U.S. military, and that's that we are very much a joint force, um, and at least we we aspire to be. Um, your career uh, is a pretty good example of that. All the time that you've you've spent working with other services. That being said, each service really does still have its own unique culture, um, even its own sort of language and vocabulary. Was that a challenge ever? You know, if this was the first time you worked with the army, suddenly there's, you know, there's, there's new slang, there's new jargon, there are things, and there is this kind of unique culture. Was, was that a challenge that you had to overcome or, um, or was it less of one than you might think? And did your experience, you know, in so many joint assignments before that, it kind of equip you or prepare you for that? No, it absolutely was a challenge. And it was something that I, I felt very well prepared for. I was fortunate because my unit from its inception, Anglico is designed to coordinate between different elements. That's why we exist. So that was already embedded. But even despite that, there are, and as you know this, and everybody listening knows this, there are institutional barriers, these silos that that get built up between the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Air Force, all of us. And you know, some of it is just friendly competition, but some of it is absolutely doctrinal differences that people get very, very emotional about. 
And I had seen units there and I've worked with units and watched units simply not work together and not work with each other because they couldn't get past those barriers. And despite us wanting to all be part of a joint force, Marines are Marines, soldiers are soldiers and et cetera. And, and that's sometimes really hard to get past. And that creates a ton of friction. And that friction means that we're less effective in combat. Unless you take the approach that what our real mission is, is to work together to win. And I don't care what my service title is. I don't care what my rank is. And I don't even care you know, what my particular job is. I'm there to support you. And so my job as a forward air controller was to support the Army. And so nothing else to me really mattered. And one of the things that was great about our team is we recognize our mission as part of this joint force was to give the Army a capability they didn't come with. The Army doesn't show up in, in what was at the time a Marine Corps battle space with fixed wing assets. They don't have fixed wing jets like the Hornet or the Harrier or the F-16 or anything else. And so my job was to deliver that capability to them. But I also had to understand that the Army doctrine and how they use air and how they even work on the ground is different than the Marine Corps' doctrine. And it wasn't my role there to get them to do it my way. It was my role there to understand why they did it their way, learn from them, and then figure out how to integrate these air assets into that. And that was my goal from the beginning. It was my my absolute belief that that was my responsibility. And when I approached the army with us bringing capability to help them, they appreciated it. I didn't walk in saying, this is how we need to do business. This is what you need to be doing. This is how we do it here. I came in and saw what they brought. They brought incredible capability. They brought tanks and Bradleys and M113s and all sorts of things I'd never even seen. And I brought something as well. And I found a way to work with them. They appreciated that. It built a really, really strong relationship and a ton of trust. And lo and behold, the Navy SEALs, the Army and the Marine Corps work really well together because all of us have the common goal of just winning. And none of us really care who got the credit or who did what. And that mindset is really what the Joint Force should be about is what can you bring to help whoever is the supporting uh, or the supported unit win. And keep your ego in check and don't care about any of the rest of it. Just do what you can to, to contribute to the fight. That's what we did. And I think that was one of the big reasons why we were successful there. I think that's a uh, an excellent point to end on, uh, Dave. Thanks so much for joining and 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 sharing a really interesting story, and um, but also sh- kind of sharing some insights into, you know, close air support is something that we all know what it is uh, on a, again sort of a conceptual level, but um, kind of giving us a better understanding, giving listeners a better understanding, even those of us who have who have who have been on the ground and 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 seen it out of kind of the in the practical side of, of what that looks like. And also sharing some really important, I think, lessons and insights that can be derived from, from this, from the, the story you told. So thank you very much, man. It was awesome. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Hope the listeners enjoy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the spear. The spear is produced by the modern war Institute at West point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West point, the army or the U S government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.